Welcome to part two of Nothing Never Happens, the interview with the co-executive directors of the Highlander Research and Education Center. Ashley and Alan will be talking with us during the second part about the Highlander's mission and its future vision for social transformation in the South and in the world. Uh, can I get you to talk about some specifics in terms of popular education? Uh, so, for example, uh, Highlander is well known for its uh, music with uh, Guy and Candy, Carawan, Pete Seeger, Sweet Honey in the Rock, and on and on. Um, that music as a tool for uh, social change and education. Uh, also, you mentioned theater. I'm wondering, you know, how much theater of the oppressed, Augusto Boal and others, technique for social transformation is being used in your popular education techniques now. Um, mm -hmm. So if you could talk about, you know, what kinds of things do you do, you know, historical timelines and, you know, I'm thinking of Project South here, the Catalyst Center mm -hmm. in um, Toronto, Canada, and also, you know, in terms of strategy and tactics, the Midwest Academy. So could mm -hmm. you speak a little bit about how you see popular education evolving and what is, you know, in, in terms of the current work of Highlander most useful? Mm -hmm. Alan, if you want to kick it off, then I can talk about culture. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I think that the some of the range of work, I mean, one thing that's important for, for folks to know, I think, about Ashley and me is that we came through the work. We came up through the educational work and pipeline, as it were. I know pipeline is kind of a strange word sometimes, but the the work that we experienced, or at least that I experienced in some of the programming that I did, was really the same kind of stuff that you're describing, um, very much theater, the oppressed work, very much uh, what Ash will probably speak to a little better than I can in terms of the cultural organizing work. but also really developing tools to understand the current economy. Um, so there's a range of tools that staff have developed over the last few years that really help to capture both the current economy, the economic situation, demystifying the economy, um, just, in, just in disentangling it from the, you know, the Wall Street Journal expressions of it that try to make sure that people don't understand what they're doing so they can actually be active agents in change. Yeah. <laughs> so really boiling it down to like home economy, but also, you know, what does it mean to really map out your community? What does it mean to really uh -huh. understand some of the basic systems? So a concrete example of that over the last few years that's been in development is a curriculum that folks um, sort of blandly at this point, because we're coming up with a sexier name for it, referred to as an economics and governance curriculum. And so that curriculum itself yeah. is designed to help folks demystify the current economy and in, in the historical context in which this economy sits. Um, and a lot of that work revolves around mapping, timeline work, a lot mm -hmm. of play, a lot of theater. So it's a very dynamic um, curriculum in the sense that it has multiple modules that are intended to take community groups and other interested groups into a cycle of understanding uh, the economics and governance systems in their own communities and how they want to take it. So it's being designed, it's not just like the actual modules that are popular education in their design, it's actually the process. So the process of designing the curriculum has taken several years because it started with an incubation. It got tested out in small samples in different communities that are interested in problems of uh, broader economic systems and how they could plug in and shape it locally 
statewide, regionally, nationally, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and so that the curriculum itself has been designed in dynamic relationships to people on the front lines who are trying to wow. use that. So it's a living, breathing curriculum, which in and of itself is a popular education spiral. Exactly. So, yeah. So that's just one one slice, and that's being you know that's in the process of being put out and to work with a you know our Appalachian Transition Fellows are part of they experience some of that curriculum. Um, we're doing work with uh, United Association for Labor Educators with uh, women uh, workers and folks in the labor movement, worker movements. Uh, this summer, we have a staff person who's incorporating some of that curriculum into that, you know, into that slice of the movement. Um, and then there are other places where we'll test out that curriculum in different spaces, so we get really, um, really dynamic feedback and really just try to hone in on it. But it's not a, not a static thing; it's a dynamic thing. Yeah. Um, well, there's some very now very old publications from Highlander, like the Activist Cookbook and uh, sure. <laughs> yeah. something uh, that's spiral bound. Um, mm -hmm. But it's you know 20, 30 years old now. So, is this something you're going to publish? It'll be. It's. It's going to be published in relationship to. Yeah. So it will be published. It will be put out in the world. Um, it'll. it'll Different components of it will be online. Mm -hmm. um, we're also in, a, in the middle of a book project. One of our staff people has been in partnership with an organization called Beautiful Solutions and the New Economies Coalition. And they're working on a project that's an actual book that is trying to capture multiple stories and narratives of uh, solutions that are being offered up by grassroots struggles, frontline struggles from around the world. Mm -hmm. And that book will actually have... Uh, a relationship to the curriculum itself too, so it, it's in the process of being worked out about how the curriculum and the book will be working together, and there'll be an online interface for that as well. So, I mean, the evolution when you talk about popular education and the evolution of that at work, I think one thing that we sit with is, you know, how do we move this educational model that's very much about being in proximity to each other, because that's mm -hmm. you know part of being in resistance is being in proximity to where we're trying to be, you know, folks are trying to fragment us. Yeah. Um, but also taking advantage of online tools, Inter internet as a human right is something that we really say and mm -hmm. boldly proclaim. Um, and so using internet as not only a you know a tool for communication, but also a, a political and economic tool. Um, and so the beautiful solutions in the curriculum will have a live relationship uh, online as well. So. Oh, good. Uh, well, could you give an example of some theater work that you found that was uh, that worked really well and and had a degree of success in helping um, some solutions or uh, imaginative paths before the group emerge? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, our cultural organizing work is, is multi, it, it looks multiple ways, right? It comes out in multiple forms because what's real is most of us who come from marginalized backgrounds, mm -hmm. um, do everything from a cultural lens, right? So whether it's like singing We Shall Overcome in Freedom Songs or writing poetry or dancing or using theater um, or, you know, sculpting or whatever, there's always a way that we have used art and culture as a form of resistance and, and sustaining our stories, right? Um, we think about cultural organizing sort of in a triad that there's, you know, art and culture and faith and spirit or holistic wellness and using all of those things together, we can impact policies and practices. Um, and so if I was thinking about theater, I mean, you mentioned um, the, about the theater of the oppressed, and I think that we have seen that up on this hill 
um, uses a tactic to help people mm-hmm. physically articulate what they're seeing in their communities and then also then physically live out what it would look like and feel like if the world was better, right, if we want, if, if yeah. our utopian visions were realized. So I think obviously the theater of the press is something that I think will always be integral to the programming that happens on the Hill, whether it's what we're offering in terms of our workshop or what people are bringing with them and, and, and workshopping through. I think we've also been in a relationship with some really cool folks who are using theater as a tool to have really important um, life-saving conversations. I think about um, the folks from there is a field who has been, um, you know, highlighting uh, the, the sort of systemic oppression of Palestinian folks um, overseas and using that, um, bringing those stories to the U.S. and having conversations in black communities um, about what state violence looks like where they live and then helping them articulate their stories using theater, right, writing screenplays that are very similar to the telling of the story of a Palestinian teenager who was murdered by the IDF. Um, and then, you know, and then switching the stories to talk about what's happening here stateside. Um, you know, bang on a can. There's just so many examples of, you know, mm-hmm. Carpetback Theater, who is, you know, a beloved sister institution um, in the South, a black theater company, is celebrating 50 years this year. And we've gotten to see them, um, you know, have really amazing conversations to remind us of the history of black people in old time and bluegrass, of, of what it is to be a, a person who is aging in art. Um, just so many critical conversations that we can have because we're using art to, to sort of break a wall down that, and, and allow us to reimagine what our lives could be like if we flex some, some radical imagination, right? So I think yeah. um, theater and music and all different forms um, of the art um, are, are real. You know, Alan talks about, uh, are real impactful. Alan talks about how we came up through the programmatic work and that's true. I, you know, we both did uh, several different kinds of programming at Highlander, um, but I was blessed to get to experience Cultural Workers Weekend, Cultural Organizing Weekend mm-hmm. up here on the hill. And at the time, you know, I was just this young, pretty, uh, green behind the ears, uh, you know, young person who didn't identify as a cultural worker, did not identify as a cultural organizer. And the staff here at Highlander were like, girl, just sit down and learn something. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I don't don't even know that I would have become the person that I am now that understands how critical culture is to the way that we are trying to transform the world um, had it not been for this institution. Um, I think that's, that's so many young people who are emerging leaders or young leaders uh, I think that's so many of our stories is that Highlander is a place where we can come in all of our wholeness, um, which is all of our identities and culture, right? All of our culture, all the ways that culture and identity relate to each other. And I think that the art in particular has been one way that Highlander um, has been able to break down walls between groups that are coming from very, very different kind of backgrounds, but actually have so much in common um, and can come up with amazing strategies if we can uh, get together and just and learn from each other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a different kind of question. Um, Since both of you are involved in faith communities, and in particular Christianity, um, of which the Bible is, um, you know, the sacred text, um, how do you work within uh, those faith communities and also you know, the South is as often called um, the Bible Belt or the buckle of the Bible Belt. Um, uh, when, you know, the Bible is so often used as um, a weapon 
um, and a way to um, keep people from having human rights or uh, uh, you know economic rights or LGBTQ rights or you know for undocumented folks. Um, uh, so you know you have the Bible being used as not a text of liberation but as a text of oppression. Uh, so how do you work within those faith communities um, and not just Christianity, but the interfaith communities that are emerging during these times uh, in Tennessee and Eastern Tennessee? Yeah, I think that one example of the way that Highlanders have done that historically would be to, um, to look at a book that Helen Lewis co-authored uh, a while back mm -hmm. called It Comes from the People. Yes, right. Uh, local theology and community development. I would say that's probably the most sustained project that Highlander's done in relationship to taking scripture and understanding local theology through the lens of people who are in an interpretive relationship with the text. Um, that'd probably be the most sustained project <laughs> that yeah. I know of, at least. Uh, aside from you know the Highlander folks who uh, helped start and then staff the Committee on Religion in Appalachia. Uh, which I think didn't, didn't last or lasted for a while, but then um, stopped functioning about 10 years ago, even though there are folks who are in the works uh, trying to resurrect that, no pun intended. But uh, yeah. I think the bigger, um, some of the things that Ash and I came to Unity around even before uh, working with Highlander or before applying to be the directors of Highlander is that very question that you're talking about, which is, you know, what does it mean to really engage folks from a theological and scriptural perspective uh, or a faith and spirit perspective? Um, how do you do that as a part of cultural organizing? Mm -hmm. I think that's probably where that would land. Um, I think one thing that this moment in particular tells folks, and I think that Highlanders even grappling with, is what, is a, what does it mean to understand, uh, what does it mean to engage uh, communities of faith in rural contexts that are, um, mm. whose, who the religious right, or rather I would even say the progressive left or even the religious left, if there is such a thing, has conceded territory to the religious right. Um, if you look at the divestment of religious progressivism, particularly in white denominations from rural spaces, that divestment from resources and other uh, ways of structuring denominations to support that kind of work really dipped in the middle of the 20th century, and that kind of runs concurrently with the religious rights capacity and in this very strategic attempt to um, gain territory, so to speak, control the narrative. Um, one of our former former directors, Suzanne Farr, who's also mm -hmm. a good friend of Project South and Southerners on the Ground and many others, uh, really points to specific examples of the right wings and the religious right in particular uh, you know attempt at doing kitchen table conversations with people of faith in rural spaces and small town spaces and organizing them out of liberatory religious thought and religious thinking um, the other way of doing that was you know very structured and strategic attempts at knocking out the FCC's laws that required you know actual fair and balanced reporting and fair and balanced media and so the rights ability to do that um, by buying up different media sources and media outlets uh, meant that narrative was controlled so i think that there's things that the left and progressive folks of faith regardless of you know tradition need to understand in terms of strategy and how the religious right in particular took economic realities and started 
flipping them into their favor. I mean, yeah. narrative realities and flipping them into their favor because it's not just like that people stare at scripture and say, that tells me to hate my neighbor because they don't, they can't say that. Yeah. <laughs> it's their, that they're actually, you know, there's a way that the, there's a way that progressive communities have, um, and I would say, you know, I'd really point to white progressive communities have really shunned away um, and stayed away from religious talk and theological talk, thinking that that's the terrain of, uh, of, of the right wing, or maybe that's the terrain of people who are backwards or behind or whatever, mm-hmm. and just really dubious, you know, there's some dubious and implicitly racist statements in that when you get into progressive spaces, I think. So I think that there's yeah. a lot to learn from um, what does it mean to re-engage that work from a cultural organizing and cultural work perspective? Mm-hmm. Um, I could go on and on about this. Ask <laughs> uh, yeah. do you if you have anything to say there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think that sometimes I'm thinking about Glenn Patton, who um, I know is a lover of Project South. But, uh, I'm sure you know a, a elder of Project South, and um, who just recently passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, and her words uh, are always really uh, present in my mind she told me to keep it simple all the time just like what she told all young people is like just keep it simple mm, yeah. and so when I think about um, you know my role is as a person of faith particularly out of the, the black liberation theology tradition um, but the Christian tradition period is, is like specifically I think um, about what it means to both be a materialist someone who values history and dialectics, um, but also recognizes, like, uh, the material truth of, of all the, the sort of Christian supremacy where Christian Christian, Christian theology and, and white supremacy intersect um, with, you know, classism and all of these things, um, and the reality that I also believe in something bigger than this, right? Um, yeah. I think that that gives me, uh, you know, a call to both make sure that movement spaces allow for me to come in my homeland. Um, but also hold my, my faith tradition and the folks that practice it with me accountable to dismantling Christian supremacy, which is something that our comrades at Soul Force um, have been talking about for a really long time. Um, exactly. So, you know, we're seeing uh, in this moment, uh, you know, folks working to reconcile the, the contradictions that we can um, and work principally in the places that we can't, right? Um, but being honest that they exist that those contradictions exist. Um, and what I think, you know, again, and I, I maybe articulated this in a different way earlier, is that I think that regardless of the practice, um, out, you know, sort of taking Christianity a little bit out of it, regardless of what we're saying we believe in, that movement is saying that we believe in stuff all the time, right? We're saying that we believe we can win. You know, I think about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, seeing the victory in Jackson and hearing people sing victory is mine, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like a gospel song. Um, you know, hearing freedom songs being resurrected that, that come from a faith tradition that's about hope and the future and what we can do, even though there might not be the material conditions that make that a reality right now, right? Yeah. So we... I think that it's also demystifying what faith is, right? That whether you're talking about a God or about movement's ability to do something that, that people think is impossible, mm-hmm. um, that all of those are declarations of faith and just as important to the sustainability of our movement and our, and our humanity, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I think you can be a materialist and have faith that those things do not have to live in contradiction with each other. And it's just demystifying 
and, and decolonizing what our understanding of faith is. And I think that that is the responsibility of those of us, um, especially in the, the faith-based traditions that have oppressed people and destroyed people's lives. Um, but, but recognizing that that doesn't have to be the only way that, it, that it's practiced, yeah. Yeah, because if you look at the landscape of the South, you know, not only the Highlander Center, but then followed by Cornelia uh, uh, Partners mm -hmm. in South mm -hmm. Georgia, and then from there, Jubilee Partners and New Hope mm -hmm. House and Catholic Worker Houses, like um, the former, unfortunately, here in Atlanta, uh, Open Door Community, Manor House in Memphis, okay. and on and on. You have these Christian communities, mostly rural, but some urban that are, you know, standing ground for social change with Bible. That's right. Right. And that won't necessarily be without contradiction, right? Like, yeah. the, the, you know, the, it, what is real is wherever humans will be, imperfection will exist. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, the, the accountability is necessary. What's also true, uh, especially from those of us with the power and privilege of being Christian, which is the predominant, you know, is, is a predominant religion right, right. um that um that, that that's real that we need to be accountable to movement and what's real and i think we saw some of this um in the last couple of years you know you may remember um that there was a season again of uh, uptick in black churches being bombed and burned mm -hmm. um and there was all this question of like who's burning black churches and like that's a silly question we know who's burning black churches right. it's white supremacists mm -hmm. um that's not the question the question is where is movement <laughs> right right um and the movement might have responded, well, where the heck has the church been, right? And that's a fair yeah. question, too, um, that we don't actually have to uh, run away from political struggle and accountability. Simultaneously, what is true is that accountability without grace is just punitive. Um, and if we are to be abolitionists um, that aren't trying to just punish people um, or, you know, exact vengeance on people, mm -hmm. um, if what we want is full measures of justice, truth and reconciliation, then what we need to do is say, like, listen, stuff has been messed up. You know, we maybe have been ultra leftist and not allowed people to bring their, their whole selves and their faith into these spaces, um, yeah. while also creating safe spaces for folks who maybe don't align with those ways of being. Um, and simultaneously, like, church, you need to step it up, and y'all been doing some real messed up stuff. Get it together, mm -hmm. right? Um, that those conversations are actually conversations that we can have. This is a new moment. And, and if it's going to be a new moment, that the only way to actually live into that practice is by doing it ourselves, right? And so I think that folks like me and Alan, who, um, you know, are not only are, are contemporarily, uh, you know, in leaders in movement and in our faith traditions, but, um, but also as people who, who come from those people, right, who are rooted in those traditions, um, not just because we figured it out, but because, like, our people were church people and, um, you know, hold those, those values really, really highly. Um, I think it's our responsibility as, like, a next generation of, of emerging leaders to uh, make sure that we're, we're holding those conversations and, and creating space for people to bring their whole selves into them, whether that's church or movement. And that actually... Like, I want to be in a movement that feels like the best of my church, right? And I want to mm -hmm. be in a church that feels like the best of my movement. That those things actually, I deserve all of that. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Alan, you want to comment? Yeah, and I, th I think to Ash's point around being, you know, the church trying to figure out how to be in right relationship to frontline struggle in this moment is, 
is really, really on point. I think that the one of the bigger questions I think denominations struggle with is their own economies being impacted by this particular moment and this particular historical trajectory, you know, the draining of uh, the latter 20th century and early 21st century of mainline church, uh, you know, what that looks like in terms of decline and that kind of thing, I think is real. And I think that there's there's temptations to move towards a more neoliberal framework of how to do church, you know, commodifying and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. or to like move toward maybe a more mission-centered, um, maybe, you know, maybe more first century <laughs> oriented kind of like discipleship framework that really kind of moves more nimbly and really accompanies front line. And there's plenty of examples of that uh, in the 20th century Highlander in some ways being, being one of them. Um, so I think that there's a lot that denominational structures are looking at and we're seeing some of that mimic some of the broader problems in the economy. But I think that there's also really bright examples both in the South and elsewhere of where those newer formations are coming together. And I think in some ways we could interpret movement in the South right now as being good examples. There's plenty of folks who are starting to open themselves up to more conversations around the role of faith and spirit and wellness and wholeness as being a part of cultural organizing. Um, and I think that's really, really exciting. So yeah, and not crossing from a perspective borders. of like, yeah, yeah, crossing borders, exactly. Yeah, especially yeah. with, you know, walls coming up and potential walls. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, so. I think that, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I think the question of what does it mean to engage and support and to be in relationship to folks who maybe are coming from more conservative theological traditions, ones that may be, um, you know, for lack of a better term, part of the problem, uh, as we might understand it, or maybe are connected to systems of oppression that are maybe, you know, maybe those systems are understanding themselves as doing the will of God, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that problem is real right now. I, I don't think that the left or the or the progressive movement um, or the progressive religious movement have really had um, a hard enough and, and, and depth enough conversation about what it means to really start organizing inside spaces where, uh, whether it's rural, urban, suburban, or whatever, um, about how to really reclaim religious voice and religious narrative uh, in this region um, in, any con- in any concentrated way. Uh, at least not folks from like from the region itself haven't really had a lot of space to do that really intentionally. And I think a lot of people on the coasts are thinking about how they should do that to the south. And I think that's really kind of tricky too. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I would just just add that last little bit in. Okay. Well, thanks. I've got one more question. Um, and if you want to add anything to what you said before, that that's good. Um, uh, what would you want to say to those of us in higher education, uh, professors, students, um, about uh, the work that we need to be doing. I mean, you've just talked about faith communities. We're also institutions that are, you know, connected with, you know, the neoliberal capitalist economy and, uh, you know, whether we're private or public. Um, You know, what can Highlander and the and the educational work that you're doing for social change, how does it speak to us, or in what ways can it speak to us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, honey, that's one of my favorite questions. <laughs> um, no, I'm oh, good. Like, <laughs> I was like, I just want to start. I promise, I can land that plane. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah. will start. I will say that. Um, I think there are a lot of expressions of higher education that are really in 
moving in bold and if I may say prophetic ways. And I think that some of those examples are the ones that are most under resourced yeah. <laughs> um, or the most resourced. Um, and I understand that as being higher, one of higher education's realities is that it's just sort of in this moment uh, of crisis in some ways. Um, so I'd say that like examples of really cutting edge transformative educational practice are out there in the academy already. And I think that I would encourage folks in education and higher ed in particular to take a look at that. I would also say like the classroom is a perfect space to just understand that people are directly impacted. Hmm. And so it means like, what does it mean to understand your content as not the central dimension of, uh, or the central text, but the live realities of the people in the classroom, educator included as being the central text and then filtering that understanding of, one's own lived text through, you know, the things in the content that you're reading. I think that can be done in almost any subject matter. And I think that can be done that doesn't have to require some, you know, cross-disciplinary this, that, and the other, even though that's really exciting sometimes. Problem-based education is really exciting, and that's great when it can happen. But even in one classroom, there can be so much done that could be experiential and transformative uh, without leaving the classroom. But I think that there are plenty of examples of where, the transgression of those boundaries is really ripe and exciting. So I think um, that would be one thing. Um, I would say not not necessarily, I would say being really clear on what folks mean by civic engagement in the academy. Yeah. Um, I think that's a language, that's hmm. language right now that's being thrown around a lot, and at least it's been since I was a student and when I was an educator in higher ed. Yeah. Um, I would say that, that was another word that was used a lot. In, to what end and what's at stake and uh, who do we, who, who's the civic that we're talking about mm -hmm. um, and who's, what's the engagement really look like. Um, I would say that one area that I would encourage and challenge higher ed to, uh, to really think about is its role in economic development and who's benefiting from that and who's not being included around the table and who are the stakeholders, stakeholders around that I think is a really big deal. Mm -hmm. Colleges and universities are like, top five developers in the country or something like that. Maybe look at New York City alone, you know, Columbia and New York University own like the most property in the whole city. Oh, that's right. And they're the biggest gentrifiers, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure in Atlanta, it's the same. Um, so I think that there's like something that colleges and students and educators have to reckon with, which is that their live realities are impactful, whether that's through the food that people are eating on campus or the, the land on which that campus sits and the, the mm. students and educators go. I think that that's a really central thing to understand. It would help people use that as a text toward greater consciousness building. Um, yeah. Anyway. And the people who yeah, clean the classrooms, yeah. right? Um, so, yeah, the workers. I mean, serve I our food. Our yeah. Poverty wages. Yeah. And mm. so, uh, you know, Absolutely. Highlander creates um, a vision for, you know, you start local with the stories mm -hmm that are around you and your colleagues. Um, mm -hmm. You have to redefine who the colleagues are sometimes. That's right. Uh, right. And, you know, cross those boundaries of, you know, the intersections of race, class, education, all of that. Uh, that's right. And then from there go out. Um, and that's been a real struggle for, uh, for my particular college is it's easier to look out than to look in. Um, you know, to, to look at economic issues on the outside, but not on the inside. Um, but, um, uh, Ashley, did you want to add to that? 
Sure. I mean, I think I definitely unite with what Alan has said. I mean, I think it's real that um, I mean, Scott is a community within a community, right? And, mm-hmm. and um, so what's real is even for Highlander is that like oppression exists out there and we fight it out there, but it also exists right here and we're dismantling it as we've learned it as well. And I think that's mm. going to be something that the colleges and universities need to struggle with. Right. Um, it's not just that all of those bad things, white supremacy and, and classism and ableism and ageism and all of those things are happening outside of the brilliance of the institution. Mm-hmm. Um, they also were very much alive and well inside. And so I, I definitely, you know, that was what you were saying, you know, about the need to struggle within, um, and I think that that looks a lot of different ways. I think that that looks like what's real is that, like, all of these colleges and universities have some legacy of resistance within them, whether it was students or faculty and staff, or in the contradictions between the, com- the community on the outside and the, the university and the college um, as an institution in, inside that community. Um, and so flanking and supporting where there is resistance, right, mm-hmm. like, like, you know, tending to that little flame. Um, is, is really critical. I think about some of the student uprisings that have even happened in the last five years um, and how critical and how much more successful they have been when there has been flank from students for faculty and staff and flank from faculty and staff to students. Yeah. Um, we just win more when we do it together, whether it's fighting for living wages or fighting for the end of policing on campuses, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think that there's some real intentional conversations that need to be had in this political political moment around recruitment and retention, um, not just of marginalized students, which, you know, everybody says they're doing, but nobody's doing well, um, and also about faculty and staff, right? Like, what does it mean to, um, you know, for me to be able to count how many tenure-track black professors that I ever encountered, right? right? Um, uh, so, like, recruitment and retention is a holistic practice, not just as, like, something that we check off so that we can say that we met, you know, metrics or whatever. Um, and then I think, finally, the thing that makes me the most excited about colleges and universities, other than the opportunity to really engage in, uh, you know, political and popular education uh, on, a, on, a, on a much more intentional front, right, um, is that what's real is, is capital, right? That's what's yeah. real right now. And universities and colleges have a lot of it. Um, and when I was a student, um, you know, I'm a graduate of, of the East Tennessee State University. I'm a proud mm-hmm. buccaneer most days. And I think that, like, um, you know, what's real is as a student um, leader that was doing activism work and organizing work, finding out that a part of my tuition was going to, to, to a, a student activity fee that I could govern um, and I could get and I could use to, like, help fuse infrastructure and resources into grassroots movements. Once I knew that, I'm sure that I spent more money at ETSU than I paid in tuition. Hmm. Um, and what that meant was that, you know, folks like Larry Gibson, the keeper of the mountain, knew that every semester we were going to bring him. And he could count on that check. And then he could take that money and he could pay his bills and he could do more work across the country uh, yeah. with communities that couldn't afford to pay him that much, right? What it looks like is, like, making sure that we're bringing, um, you know, innovative and radical folks to campus to actually push our campus community towards a, a more liberatory politic. Um, and so, you know, recognizing the power that folks have as students or as faculty with, with faculty, like with uh, department budgets, et cetera, um, mm-hmm. and figuring out ways that we can build together to be able to take those resources and infuse them back into community is really, really critical. And it's beautiful to do that to bring somebody like me or Alan or, you know, 
well-known folks, we want you to do that for sure. But it's also real that, like, there are grassroots communities right there around Agnes Scott who could use that infusion of resources, you know, who could use a, a meeting room, right? Like, oh, exactly. simple thing. Um, and so I think that, you know, again, I would I would pull from from Gwen Patton and say, keep it simple. Like, use the resources that you have at your at your fingertips to support the ongoing sustainability of grassroots struggle. And if you do that, you will never lose. Like, you will if you invest. Um, and the people most directly impacted, you will never, ever, 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 ever regret it because those those minimal resources do a lot. But what's real is our people could do even more with even more, um, and we have the ability to be able to get it for them. And so I think that's a that's a really critical thing to be to be struggling through and with um, as folks that are you know committed to the academy and, and and to higher education. Yes. Okay. So last thing, what's on the horizon for Highlander? In the next year, oh, the best! We're gonna win some stuff uh, <laughs> with our people. Like uh, that's what's ahead for Highlander is that we are gonna be um, here and healthy and sustained because we are about uh, the the work of making sure that we can flank and support frontline struggles. Um, so there's some really exciting stuff coming up. We've got uh, our Rage Hope and Community uh, Community Organizing in These Times training June 1st through the 4th. Unfortunately. Um, or, or fortunately, it's maxed out. We had so many people saying that they wanted to come and participate in this four-day intensive mm -hmm. um, that we have a waiting list now. Um, and so we're going to try to replicate that later in the year. Um, we are also sending people out um, actually to the great city of Atlanta, Georgia, for the Southern Movement Assembly's organizing intensive, um, which will be in Atlanta the, the very next weekend, the weekend of June 8th. Um, and then... We obviously um, are, are super excited about celebrating our 85th year with our movement family. Um, this is our first as executive directors, um, and you know I'm the first black woman to ever be the executive director of this institution. Um, so it's going to be a it's going to be a party. We're going to we we deserve to be able to celebrate all the victories and all the lessons that our folks are learning out in the field right now. Yeah, um, and so. Uh, we also need time to come together and learn the lessons and skill share and have political conversations and learn from each other. Um, mm -hmm. So we're going to, um, on September 22nd through the 24th, have our 85th homecoming uh, and do all those things. Um, and we're expecting hundreds, if not thousands of people uh, to be on the Hill that weekend. So um, it's open call. You're totally invited. There's a Facebook event um, mm -hmm. where more information will be coming out. But you can also go to our website just highlandercenter.org um, for more updates and to sign up for our newsletter, The View from the Hill. Okay. There's lots of hope there, lots of vision. Lots of good stuff. Lots yeah. of good stuff. Well, Ashley and Alan, thank you so much for being on um, Nothing Never Happens. It's been great talking to you, and you've given us a lot to think about. Uh, one of the things yeah. with this podcast is to reach out to those um, – not just in higher education, but those who are in K through 12 education also who are um, concerned about um, social change and, you know, want to connect with others who are um, so that they're not feeling so alone. So thank you for being there. And um, Absolutely. I'm glad to have you too as the new directors. This, will, this is exciting. We're so grateful thank for you time so much, to be on the podcast to be seen and, and so excited about continuing to, you know, sort of steward this grand resource um, that is actually not just ours, but belongs to all of you. So we're excited to see you on the Hill. Okay. Thanks. Absolutely.
brings us to the end of Nothing Never Happens with the co-executive directors of the Highlander Research and Education Center. Our music theme is composed by Aviva and the Flying Penguins, orchestrated, arranged, and performed by Lance Eric Hagen. Our producer is Calvin Bergamy, and our audio engineer is China Wilson. This is Nothing Never Happens, and I'm your host, Tina Pippen. Until next time. Do, 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 do.